Right, amen. Our, our children can be dismissed to their classes. And as they head out, I uh, just want to update you guys. Uh, thank you for your continued prayers. Our pastoral search committee has continued to meet. Uh, we're actually starting to talk with candidates now. It's exciting getting some resumes in. And uh, so you'll be hearing some more updates here pretty soon from us. Uh, but in the meantime, we were blessed last week uh, with Don Shoemaker from the Sylvie Grace Brother Church. He's back again with us uh, this morning. We didn't scare you away last week. No? <laughs> All right. So I'm going to ask Don if he'll come up and open up the word for us this morning. I didn't scare you away. <laughs> Thank you for the opportunity. I've uh, been in this church ever since. Uh, I think it's on. Is it on? No, it's still on mute. Still on mute. It says it's not. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it was 1970 the first time I was here. Your pastor then was Stan Jensen, a colleague, a friend of mine, and uh, followed this church for many years. Last Sunday, we looked at the. Uh, the time of Jesus in the garden, his agony, his prayers, and the disciples' faithlessness. And uh, today we look at another event of this season, which is the uh, day of Pentecost. There you go. There it is. All right. I do not examine the interior of a microphone. <laughs> All right. You have an outline sheet. I invite you to take it from your bulletin and follow along as we look at the uh, day of Pentecost. Um, Easter season is not complete without Pentecost. You're, you're, you're failing to read the last chapter in the book if we don't observe Pentecost. And Christians who observe Easter ought to observe Pentecost, you say, well, when it is, it's coming up on May 20th of this year. If you look at the beautiful stained glass windows, uh, what's the last one over there? It's Christ ascending, isn't it? And uh, that's followed by Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast day, also known as the Feast of Weeks. It marked 50 days since the Passover. Pentecost drew many pilgrims to Jerusalem to celebrate the first in gathering of the harvest. What an appropriate day to have the first in gathering of the harvest of souls in the New Testament church. A preview of many in gatherings to come which continue right up to our present day. The people came to Jerusalem and they joyously celebrated the abundance that God gives and they renewed their commitment to Him. That's something we should think of when we think of Pentecost. Pentecost is a taste of what is to come, a previous harvest that looks forward to the final harvest of our salvation. The day of Pentecost was truly a mountaintop experience. Have you had some mountaintop experiences with Christ? You probably have. But serving Jesus isn't all mountaintop experiences. The day comes you have to go down into the valley. There will be opposition. There may be a high price to pay. Pentecost reminds me of the persecuted church. And that's a real threat today. Today in, in Egypt, in Syria, Iran, in Iraq, in China, and North Korea, and elsewhere, the church is undergoing severe persecution. And it could happen here. It could happen here. 
Even in our country, with our rights and freedom of religion, there are challenges to our faith that can lead to persecution of, of a special sort that we can see in America. So think of that when you think of Pentecost. Now we're going to look at three things in chapter 2. We're going to look at the signs of Pentecost, the sermon of Pentecost, and then the spiritual life that Pentecost generated. I find them all to be interesting topics. The signs we find in verses, uh, beginning in verses 1 and 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The sound of wind. I take this to be a sign of the Spirit's power. Wind is the Spirit at work. God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth was empty and void, and then the Spirit of God began to move over the face of the water, and the days of creation took place. And God formed man of the dust of the earth. What's wrong with him? He's just laying there. Well, the Spirit of God had to come and blow the breath of life into man, and man became a living being. And then Ezekiel had an interesting vision. He saw a valley of dry bones, and then the bones began to shake, and they came together. But they're not alive. What has to happen? And God says, Them bones and bones gonna walk around, them bones and bones gonna walk around, and he blew his spirit into the bones. And they were alive. He needs to blow his spirit in his church today and bring some bones to life. Sound of wind, the sign of the Spirit's power. And then there are the tongues of fire in verse 3. The divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one. On the sign of the Spirit's presence, the Spirit of God distributed to each of the waiting disciples who were there. A hundred and twenty of all. Think, think of it. Think of it. The number of Christians who could perhaps fill one side of this sanctuary went out and changed the world because the Spirit of God came upon each of them. And third, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Let me give you a great insight. This verse is controversial. Is that a great insight? Do you ever know that? This verse is controversial. Speaking in tongues, I take it as a sign of the Spirit's plan. When I was a teenager, I began to feel spiritual inadequacy in my life, and I certainly thought my church was lukewarm. And I gravitated toward Pentecostalism to see if it had more of God for me, perhaps. After about five years, I left the movement, but not without a lot of appreciation for what it had to offer. And I think especially of two great things, worship and teaching on the Holy Spirit, which was not being done that much in other churches. And then there was one other great benefit that I got within Pentecostalism. I met my wife, Mary. And we were married in a Pentecostal church in 1966. You didn't think she could be that old, did you? This event drew a great crowd. And as a result of this event, it must have been in some kind of a public place where people could hear all the sound. 
the disciples walked out and uh, verses 5 to 8 they were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven it came for Pentecost and at this sound the many languages the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language and they were amazed and astonished saying are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of them speak in his own native language? And Tim didn't read all those names for us. Do you want to read them, Tim? Let's not. Let's go down to verse 12. We hear them telling us in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The real miracle of the languages... In fact, let's demystify this a little bit. Speaking in tongues literally means they were speaking other languages. Other languages. The miracle of the other languages was, was not to prove to some individual that he's gone deeper with God. It's to prove to the multitudes gathered that the gospel is now going to go out to all languages. You know, if you want to keep a secret, it's, you say it in a language that people you don't want to hear can't understand it. And uh, you know who's good at that? Preachers, lawyers, and doctors. <laughs> yeah, I like to throw out a few Greek words to make you think I know what I'm talking about. Private languages. It's to keep others from knowing, keep them on the outside. But if you want everybody to know... You speak it in languages that people can understand. And the gospel is the miracle. What happened here is the miracle of languages that speak to the spirit of the gospel to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So in this little box, I'll give you a summary. Speaking in tongues here in Acts 2.4, by the Spirit's prompting, the disciples spoke in other languages unknown to them, but known to those who heard. They spoke words that were understood, words about God's mighty deeds. It's exactly what verse 4 is giving us. Now before we go on, I want to take that little phrase, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and talk to just for a minute. I did a fairly extensive study of the New Testament once on being filled with the Spirit, and I was shockingly surprised with a few things I found, or shall I say I didn't find. Let me quickly mention them to you. Nowhere in the New Testament does anyone seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I didn't find that. I was surprised. Nowhere. Second, nowhere in the New Testament does anyone pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What they prayed for was that God would give them the strength to fit the circumstances, the tough circumstances they were facing for Christ. And God responded with the filling of the Spirit. Now, having said that, I, I pray for an outpouring of God's Spirit in our land and in our churches. I, I've seen a couple of revivals in my life, especially the Jesus movement that was going when we arrived in Southern California in 1970, and we didn't know what to make of it. People with long hair playing guitars, can't go to heaven like that. Uh, God had to work on my heart a little bit along the way, and that's a separate story. But uh, so far as actually finding in the New Testament to pray to be filled with the Spirit, I was surprised not to find that there. Another thing I didn't find, nowhere in the New Testament does anyone follow steps 
to be filled with the Spirit. See, Paul didn't know about these little booklets floating around. No steps. The closest thing you'll find to steps is a verse I'll give you later in chapter 2, and I don't know anyone that really teaches to follow that, but very few anyway. And then fourth, uh, nowhere in the New Testament does anyone testify to being filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, I'm filled with the Spirit. How about you? I got filled with the Spirit five years ago. What's wrong with you? What's taking you so long? Don't find it in the New Testament. So maybe we need to be chastised a little bit in what the New Testament doesn't say that we may be pretty sure it does say. I'd sum it up this way. God empowers us with his Holy Spirit so we can confess Jesus as Lord. Because, you know, 1 Corinthians 12.3 says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. God empowers us so that we might fulfill the work he's called us to do. Pick seven men, Acts 6 tells us, who are filled with the Spirit, whom we can appoint over this business. God empowers us with His Holy Spirit so we can face challenges and persecutions. Stephen looked up to heaven and filled with the Holy Spirit, he gave his testimony before he was martyred. My position simply is, I believe we're filled with the Spirit at the time that we confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. But this reality needs to be renewed and renewed and renewed over and over. Ever buy a new car and before you drive off the lot, now the salespeople are so friendly to you, and we're going to give you a full tank of gas before you leave. And so you take that $2,000 a gallon tank of gas. <laughs> and you drive it, ways and, hey, I've got to get gas again. Why should I have to get gas? It was full. Well, if you use it, you're going to have to put more gas in it. And if you live for Christ and you live in the struggles of being a Christian in a difficult world, you've got to refill your tank. And so while the filling of the Spirit, I believe, is our reality at the time we confess Jesus, it's not a static thing. It must be renewed and renewed and renewed over and over. And that's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.18 to, to go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's look now at the Sermon of Pentecost, the second main point. First Peter starts with an explanation. What do the signs mean? And uh, we see that there is a range of responses to these events, ranging all the way from amazement to mockery. Verse 12, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are full of new wine. And so the first thing Peter does is to engage in apologetics. What is apologetics? It's when you argue for the faith using reasonable arguments rather than biblical texts. And so Paul, Peter deals with this issue, are the disciples drunk? And he says... In verse 15, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. People don't get drunk at 9 a.m. You say, Peter never knew my Uncle Clyde. He was well into his cups by 9 a.m. Okay, but Peter's point is well taken. That's his apologetic and then he goes in to explain what the signs really mean. It's the ushering in of events of the last days. The last days have begun. 
The last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And the Spirit's power is given to all God's children, not a select few, like in the Old Testament, but to all of God's children. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. That's because the older men take more naps. The dramatic day of the Lord will surely come. And then he uses a lot of... uh, Oh, I need to read a little more on that second point. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So, regardless of gender, regardless of social status, regardless of, of age, the Spirit of God is poured out. Children should be seen and not heard, we say, but unless they're filled with the Spirit... And then the dramatic day of the Lord will surely come. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And we can debate whether those are literal or figurative signs, but the point is the pouring out of the Spirit looks ahead to the dramatic day of the Lord that will surely come. Cosmic signs for this decisive day of judgment. It's always been a temptation of the church to try to set the date when this is going to happen, in spite of the fact Jesus said, you don't know anything about that. We do it anyway. And the question comes up, can we set the date? We just observed the 70th anniversary of the state of Israel. In 1948, I'm sure many Christians were saying, the Lord's about to come. And then I remember the Six-Day War of June 1967. I was in seminary at the time, and if you'd have cut our suspenders, we'd have all been raptured. But we didn't wear suspenders, and and so we're all still here. But we thought that, oh my, when Israel took over the old city of Jerusalem, the end was at hand. Well, guess what? That's over 50 years ago. So we can't set the time, we can't set the date, we can't, def- we can't know the details, but the point is still there. The end is coming. The day of the Lord will surely come. And we need to be busy in the world until he comes. And in order to do that, we need to be filled with his spirit. And then the last great news of this, uh, of this, uh, this event is that all who call on the Lord will be saved. Verse 21. Great words. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jew, Gentile, bond, free, male, female, strong, weak. Salvation is open to all. The second phase of Peter's sermon is a proclamation. What has God done through His Son? I want you to see how Christ-centered this sermon is. It's not a sermon on the Spirit. It's a sermon on the Son. God worked great wonders through His Son. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know. God worked great signs through Jesus. God willed that his son die on the cross. This is quite a verse. 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So let me ask you this question. Did Jesus die because it was God's plan, or did Jesus die because wicked people put him to death? Yes, yes. 
You say that's not logical. Don't worry about logic. These are these are true thoughts both ways. You say it sounds contradictory. How do we reconcile the thoughts? You don't have to reconcile friends. And the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man, responsibility of man, are, are doctrines that are friends with each other. They're both taught in Scripture. So I don't worry. I'm not a philosopher, so I don't worry about trying to reason that out. I think the Bible says both. God is in charge. We are responsible. Third, God raised him from the dead. Verse 24. God raised him up, loosening the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And then in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Then the fourth point of Peter's proclamation is that God exalted his son to his right hand. That's the picture of the ascension we have over there. And what happened... In, in keeping with the ascension, verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and are hearing. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the greatest evangelistic sermon that has ever been delivered. And it has the thought in it that Jesus is supreme Lord of all, the name that is above every name. And we must confess him and come to him to be saved. So what can we say about Peter's great sermon? Well, one thing, it sure was short. You can read it in three minutes. But uh, as a preacher, I have to point out to you verse 40. With many other words, he continued to exhort them. So he filled the whole, what, 35 minutes? And I want you to see from Peter's sermon, this is so important, it was a message to unbelievers, not to believers. It was was a message about Jesus spoken to non-believers, how they can become followers of Jesus, and enter into the gift of the Spirit. It was not a message to believers on how they can go deeper into the Spirit. No. Now, down in Seal Beach, we're a block from the ocean, and uh, so somebody coined the term surfboard theology for what we teach down there. And it's like this. The wave of the Spirit is coming in, and you have a choice either to ride it or to be engulfed by it. The choice is yours. And so once a year, we have a baptism in the ocean. And I like to think that, that the waves that come in are the waves of the Spirit. You've got to time them. Here goes the wave. I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I guess they're more Baptist waves than brethren waves. But uh, I like the symbolism there of the waves of the Spirit coming in baptism. Very biblical, actually. But you heard it here. Surfboard theology. You won't hear it anywhere else. The third feature of Peter's sermon is the invitation. What are you going to do about all this? You see, great conviction came upon the, on many in the crowd. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter gives them a two-step direction on what they ought to do. And the first is to repent. Repent. Change your heart. Turn your life around. 
You once faced this way away from God, you now face this way toward God. You once thought this about Jesus, now you think this about Jesus. You once were in your sin, now you are confessing your sin and being forgiven your sin. That's repentance. Turn your life around. About face. And the second instruction he gave was what? Be baptized. Come on, I know we're allergic to that a little bit. But Paul, Peter puts it right in there. Be baptized. Repentance is a work of the heart. Baptism is the outward sign of repentance. John the Baptist baptized with a baptism of repentance. And then he pointed to the one who would baptize in the Spirit. Jesus baptizes with a baptism of repentance and the gift of the Holy Spirit. John didn't do that. Now, we've kind of made a substitute for this pattern we find in Acts 2.42. It's called the, the walking invitation or the altar call, if you please. We say, if you want to become a Christian, walk forward and confess Jesus. The New Testament would really say, if you want to become a Christian, walk into the waters of baptism and confess Jesus. At least that's the pattern I find. The result is, you receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No ifs, no ands, no buts, and no pluses either. No extra steps to take. The last thing I want us to see in the closing moments is the spiritual life of Pentecost. And we're going to look at verses 41 and 42. And what I really like about these two verses is how useful they are for discipling new Christians. In two verses you have a discipleship manual. The spiritual life of Pentecost. How to get started as a disciple. Be baptized. Verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The unbaptized Christians simply are not found in the New Testament anywhere. It's assumed that if you confess Christ, you will be baptized, and you will be added to the body of believers. You say, what about the thief on the cross? Okay, I'll give you that one. But uh, if I were there and he confessed Christ, I would put some water on a sponge... You know where I'm going with that. And lift it up and baptize him. A, a Grace Brethren minister went into a hospital and there was a patient there dying of AIDS. And he said, Pastor, I want you to baptize me. He was in no condition to get out of bed. And he said, this Grace Brethren minister said to a whole group of Brethren ministers, Brothers, I hope you forgive me. But I went into the bathroom and I got a cup of water and I baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I remember doing that once to front of the church when we had an ALS patient. And a little bit before he died, he wanted to be baptized. And I poured water over his head. You want to get started as a disciple? Be baptized. You want to continue as a disciple? I hope you do. Well, we learn here they devoted themselves to four things. Or the King James Version says they continued steadfastly in these things, and I like them. The first thing that they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. You see, the apostles 
were men called by Jesus and equipped by Jesus with the Holy Spirit so that they would understand the meaning of Jesus' life and, and the meaning of his teachings. And as they wrote those words, they were infallible. The question for any church is, are we really teaching the apostles' doctrine? Because a lot of churches, sadly, have departed from the apostles' doctrine. And then if you want to grow as a Christian, here's the second thing you should do. Devote yourself continually to experiencing fellowship with other believers. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, the coming together, meaningful fellowship, whereby you show the tangible signs of love, prayer for one another, financial support, spiritual support, encouragement, correction, spending time with others to help them grow in the Lord, weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. That's fellowship. The third thing you do together if you want to mature as a Christian is to devote yourself to the breaking of the bread. The breaking of the bread, literally. This is not ordinary bread. This is a special eating of bread that we break together. Because you see, when the early Christians came together, they frequently had meals. And these meals were known as love feasts. And at these gatherings, the communion of the bread and the cup would be observed. And I believe that's probably what Luke has in mind here when he speaks of the breaking of the bread. Frequent observance of communion if you want to grow as a disciple. And then fourth, they devoted themselves to the prayers of the church. These were Jewish converts, and they knew what it meant to pray in the synagogue. And they came with prayers that they prayed together with one another. Probably a more formal situation than you and I are used to, but prayer, the prayers of the church were very important. When we pray as a congregation, the least we can pray for is for the blessing of God on this church and on its leaders and on the gathering. We can pray for the spread of the gospel. We can pray for Jim Hawking as he carries on his very unique ministry and for other missionaries we know, some of whom this church supports that I've known for 40 years. We can pray for the needs of one another. We can pray for our community and for our nation and for all who lead us, as Scripture commands us to do. And we can pray for the persecuted church. You can make a longer list, I'm sure, but I think our prayers as a congregation ought to at least include these things. Have you repented of your sins? Have you confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior? Have you received the outward sign of that repentance, which is water baptism? Remember, the thought of an unbaptized Christian is found nowhere in the New Testament. And then are you continually faithful as Christians that you might grow thereby, faithful to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Let's all examine ourselves on these points and see if we're really being Pentecostal disciples, as you find in chapter 2. Lord, I thank you for the privilege of sharing your word this morning on this congregation. Bless it richly in the days of the future as you give guidance on who the shepherd of this congregation shall be and bless the elder board and all others in leadership and, and the whole flock here, Lord, to be filled with the Spirit and to be the church you would have it be in this uh, special location where you've placed it. 
Work in all of our hearts, Lord, that we might uh, grow in your spirit and grow in faithfulness. And if there's anyone here who has never made that initial confession of Jesus as Lord, I pray that he or she might do so in these closing moments of prayer. Just ask Christ to come into your life and to forgive you your sin and receive him as your Lord and Savior and and, uh, ask him to give you the gift of eternal life because God so loved the world that he gave his only Son Whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you stand together, please? And let's pray together the prayer that Jesus gave us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. May the Lord bless you as a congregation. May the Lord bless you individually as you go forth to serve Christ in the week ahead. And now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think, according to the power that works within us, unto him be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church to all generations forever. And God's people said, Amen. God bless you.